1: Welcome to Classical Ideas, this is Greg Soden. I am the cook in my home. For me, there is nothing like coming home from a long day at work and slicing vegetables, cooking rice, and savoring some time in the kitchen while listening to music, audiobooks, or a podcast episode of my favorite shows. Recently, a new book arrived in the mail with plenty of delicious vegan recipes and fantastic stories. From Japanese Buddhist Zen temples. That book is just enough, and it's by Geshen Claire Greenwood, a Soto Zen priest and writer who spent several years cooking and practicing in Japanese monasteries. I've been aware of Greenwood's work for some time, but it was really her hilarious and very enjoyable conversation on one of my favorite other podcasts, Japan Station, with host Tony Vega that turned me on to her writing. Since diving into her work, I've really enjoyed her wonderful blog entries on medium.com, her first book, Bow First, Ask Questions Later from Wisdom Publications, and her latest book, Just Enough, Vegan Recipes and Stories from Japan's Buddhist Temples. In this conversation, we discuss monastic life and post-monastic lifestyle changes, my adventures in cooking somewhat badly from the book's recipe for miso soup, how to find the right ingredients for Japanese cooking if you do not live in Japan, and also the monastic eating practice of oryoki. You can find Geshen Claire Greenwood online at geshen.net, on Patreon at patreon.com slash geshen, on Twitter at geshenclaire, and many essays on medium.com at Geshe and Claire. You can find our latest book, Just Enough, which is the topic of today's conversation from New World Library. It is a cookbook, so if you're at the bookstore in the section where books on Zen are found and you don't see it, check the cooking section also. You can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas or Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Please give me a follow for updates about the show. This was a very fun conversation. I think it went on until 11 p.m. local time in the Eastern Standard Time where I live, so the vibe is a little different for me because I usually record episodes in the morning. Enjoy my excellent chat with Gesch and Claire Greenwood. much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you on the show, and I am hoping that you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit.
0: Okay. Um, well, I am a writer, and so does Zen Priest. I wrote the book Bell First, Ask Questions Later, and I just published my second book, Just Enough, which is um, vegan recipes and stories from my time in Japan. And I'm also training to be a marriage and family therapist right now.
1: How long have you been out of monastic living at this point?
0: Yeah, um, I think it's been almost four years, so, or yeah, three years, something like that.
1: So you left in like 2016? yes (laughs) okay cool um so monastic living and like you know buddhist practice out in the world obviously are pretty pretty different i would imagine um how would you describe your buddhist practice post-monastery what are you up to now
0: post-monastery i am definitely in my Stephen bachelor phase i (laughs) like to call it um i guess for the listeners who don't know who he is he's a a famous uh, secular Buddhist writer who's kind of famous for throwing out a lot of traditional ideas in Buddhism, like karma and um, reincarnation and things like that. And um, so, and also, he actually had a kind of similar trajectory as me. He was a um, a Zen monk in Korea and, or he, he didn't Tibetan tradition and then trained in Korea and then came out the other side, like very secular. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel comforted to know that like, this is a trajectory that happens, um, by, you know, people who are, um, have their head on their shoulders. Um, so yeah, I, and, and I'm very, um, I'm very much into, um, kind of realistic and embodied um, spiritual practice. So, kind of the polar opposite of what (laughs) I was doing in Japan.
1: Well, you know, and Stephen Batchelor probably draws a lot of people to him and his books for that exact reason, wouldn't you think?
0: Because it's so secular or because he has that monastic basis?
1: Well, you know, I think it's both probably because they know that he's taken it very seriously, kind of like as far as he could in one way and then came out the other end.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe you're right. Like I think that the conclusions he came to sort of only could have come about because of all of his investment in the tradition. Um so I like to think that I'm similar. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you have like a like a sitting group practice or anything that you're doing these days?
0: I Do not, although I just, I mean, really where I see my community right now is in my graduate school, so I'm studying to be a therapist, and it's at California's Institute of Integral Studies, which is a really long tradition of kind of like East-West dialogue um, and like engagement with spiritual traditions, so I'm really loving the community there, and I just got a job at the um, Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley. Which nice. is a scenario. Yeah, yeah. So I look forward to like engaging with kind of the like academic slash practitioner overlap um that's there. Um but no I I'm feeling very um not wanting to be part of Buddhist groups, um, for better or for worse. And that's kind of a whole like that's what my therapy is about. So we don't have to go there. <laughs>
1: gotcha. You know, that's really interesting, too, because, like, early in the book, you write about, like, how serious you were in your practice and how you felt like you were, like, alienating people around you in your monastery. And now you're not like that. Do you ever talk to, like, young, enthusiastic people about these experiences, about, like, just wanting to get it right and, you know, coming out the other end of that and realizing that your seriousness was—it took you to a different place than you expected?
0: Yeah, you know, I— um Actually, part of the reason I wanted to, I took this new job I'm doing, which is working with the chaplaincy program, is like I really empathize with kind of that struggle of um, well, being a beginner, but then also like leaving monastic life and transitioning back into contemporary society and how hard that is. I do get, I mean, I get, yeah, I get a lot of people write to me and are kind of, a common question I get is like, well, I get the, I want to practice in Japan, what should I do question all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so much is that I like wrote a blog specifically about that. And, um, you know, I tell people don't go. Um, I tell people but if you have to go to go, like, um, I make sure you study Japanese first. Um, and then what else is there to say about that? Yeah, I get people writing to me um, being like, I hear you're not supposed to think when you meditate and you're supposed <laughs> to get rid of like love and desire. And that's a question I really empathize with too because that was such a huge struggle for me. And that's like what I took so seriously is trying to get rid of desire. Um, and, you know, it's not possible. So I do engage with people about that and sort of, but I, I try not to tell people like what to do, um, although I will say that, you know, in my experience, I could never get rid of desire and the, the Buddhist teachers I was around never got rid of their desire and their anger. So you need to figure out other ways of <laughs> engaging with those negative
1: emotions. Well, you know what's 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 interesting about that is, as I was reading your book, I saw that you had a chapter that, like you, where you kind of dis- dissect this desire and this inability to get rid of it, and it's like the the chapter on poison, I think, and bamboo, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, I want to talk about the book really quick. So you have this brand new book, Just Enough Vegan Recipes and Stories from Japan's Buddhist Temples uh, out from my, my buddies over at new world library. Um, and I'm just curious if you can like, tell me about how you got into food, got into cooking, because this is like part memoir, part cookbook, and it's just such a cool little thing. So how'd you get into like food and cooking in the first place?
0: Yeah. Well, I, my family is, a a Oh, shoot. I just dropped some dishes. Um, my family is a big food family. Um, we're Italian, so, you know, we always ate um, dinner together, big meals growing up. So I think I have a natural <clears throat> association between food and love and, you know, connection. Um, and then when I came to Japan, the monastery where I was staying, the first one, um, for whatever reason, they would put the beginners in the kitchen, which is actually the like opposite of what you're supposed to do. It's supposed to be the most advanced practitioner is in charge of the kitchen. Mm. But I, as a like 23 year old American woman who spoke no Japanese and had no Zen practice experience, (laughs) was put in charge of the kitchen and it was like just a hot mess. Um, But, you know, it was something that I could directly engage with. You know, cooking is very practical. It's not esoteric at all. It's not mysterious there's a product at the end, there's a method, right? So it was something that I could learn about and improve. And I found that over the years that I was there, I was there for about five years, um, my appreciation of Japanese food and my knowledge increased and sort of my skill. And it sort of was in tangent with my Zen practice, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, just <clears throat> I saw it as like a way, that was kind of my way in to Zen practice, and and also, like, food is, um, especially in the monastery, and I talk about this in the book, um, because monastic life is so strict and hard, like, you're away from your family, there's no television or internet, you don't have a lot of entertainment, so food is really, like, one of the only sources of pleasure, right? Mm. Um, So I really... I liked cooking because it was a way to make people happy. Um it was a way to and you know eating eating is nice. <laughs> it tastes <Yeah>. good. <laughs>
1: how, how many people were you cooking for like on any given day in a <laughs> monastery?
0: You no, know, it wasn't that many. I would say um like 20 to 30.
1: Were the were the standards high? Like did they have high expectations for the food coming out?
0: Yes. Um well, so I, I trained in two different places. They trained in a, at Toshiji, which is a co ed monastery in Okayama. And then I trained in Aichisenmoni Soto, which is um, an all women's convent in Nagoya. And Toshiji is kind of like Lazi's Fair. Like, mm. it's just, it's kind of a mess. Um, <laughs> like, there's not really, there's rules, but like, they are followed to varying degrees um so I don't think the standards were that high um although people would get mad at me like if I made bad food like I definitely remember (laughs) people talking talking poop about my I don't know if I could swear on this podcast about my food there but then when I went to the convent yes it was very exacting and there was like a curriculum and like a, i was trained um and i learned like specific ways of making things
1: okay well a little a little well-timed swearing every now and then it doesn't hurt anybody um so you know it, in the u.s um you write in the book about this concept called Oriyoki, and did i pronounce that right yeah. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure. Um, so in the US you write that we tend to think about like things that we lack. Like for me personally, I lack retirement security. I moved to a new city <laughs> a year ago, I lack friends. We lack uh-huh. fitness, we and like so we, we notice all these things that we don't have instead of noticing when we have just enough, which is the title okay. of your book. Yeah. What, can you tell me about the contrast of this concept of just enough that you noticed while living in Japan and, like, kind of how you put this puzzle together?
0: Well, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about how, like, um, a subtext of the book, or maybe it's not a subtext of that book, is that I was writing it, you know, after I also lacked retirement funds, right? Mm-hmm. I spent the majority of my 20s um, in a monastery, and I came out and I had nothing, like, and all of, none of my friends would talk to me and I was, you know, alienated from my family and had no money and no job skills, right? So I I spent the last, you know, three years sort of like, um, reinventing a life for myself. And I always have these kind of doubts. I'm plagued with these like demons of like, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough friends, you know, that, that voice. And so this book was kind of um, I was using, you know, I use food as a metaphor. Um, but I was really, it was coming from this place of like feeling like I didn't have, have enough and, and wanting to have enough. Um, and I think in my own life, I have to be really conscious and I have to make a choice to focus on the things that I do have, to be honest, you know, to um, make gratitude part of my daily practice. And it is, you know, my husband has an alarm that goes off it. 3 p.m. and 8 p.m., and we say three things that we're grateful for, and um, it is a practice, and I think, you know, it's tricky, though, because I think in Buddhism, a lot of times we can oscillate between these two extremes, and that's another thing I write about in the book. It's very easy to be like, oh, I don't need things, right? Mm. Like, I don't need material things. I'm just going to be in the moment, and then but like you need retirement, <laughs> so there needs to be a middle way between those two things, um, and there's no one way how to do that. But this book is sort of a testament to that struggle, and it's I, I hope that you know people can walk away with it being like ah there's there is a balance that can be attained.
1: So what so what is um or yogi in like a monastic context?
0: So Orioki is a um, ritualized style of eating that is practiced every day in Japanese monasteries and in Americans and monasteries. It has, um, five um, black lacquer bowls that are kept inside each other, like nesting dolls. And there is a series of chants that happen, um, before and during and after. And you, um, Open the bowls, and then servers come and serve you, and then chant. It is all very um, choreographed. There's specific hands you use to open the bowls in specific ways, and um, you clean it in specific motions. And there's actually a overlap between tea ceremony and orioke like how you, you know, use the wiping cloth. Um, And so Orioki comes from, it's um, three Chinese characters, which means um, it's the right amount and bowl. So it's basically the right amount of food. So this practice is meant to, um, well, you receive in your bowls the right amount of food because there's usually get um, a portion of rice, soup, and then um, like one to three little dishes of vegetables.
1: Okay. Um, Do you, okay. So like whenever you were in the monastery and like you wrote in the book that you were feeling very serious and you were attempting to have everything like down, how -hmm. long was it until you had like Orioki down and it became like a second nature?
0: That's a good question. I don't remember exact times, but I do remember that it's different for lay people and monks So I learned one way because they have different bowls because the lay people have yeah different bowls than the monks. So I I learned one way as a lay person and maybe it took, I don't know, a month or something. And then later, like a year later, when I ordained, I had to relearn the whole thing. (laughs) And I was so annoyed because like food was my favorite part of the day. And then suddenly I had to like Relearn everything, and I had these big long robes. And I remember saying to one of the monks, "Like I hate, I hate eating now. I hate." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he was like, "It gets better. Don't worry. Like everybody struggles in the beginning." Um, so I mean, you're doing it every day, and when you first ordain, there's a period called Tangaryo where um, you have to sit all day um, and not move, and then you eat Oriyaki three times a day. So it's like this intensive. Meditation and also learning period where you learn how to put on your robes and do all the rituals So it's kind of like a like a crash course and everything so you actually do pick it up kind of by the end of that week just because you're Doing it all the time and you have a person assigned to you. Who's like critiquing you the whole time Um, Yeah,
1: you know whenever I I've had a few people on this show who have studied in Japan and been monastic in Japan and in the book, like your book reinforced it as well, in that it is cold, like really cold. And, <laughs> I mean, yeah,
0: psychologically, <laughs>
1: well, maybe both. I don't know. But like, um, I'm curious, like how food plays into that, because I feel like I would just be like freezing cold all the time, just waiting for the soup to come out. Is that what it's kind of what it's like?
0: Definitely, I mean, you eat for breakfast, it's essentially rice gruel. Well, what rice porridge, if I'm being generous? <laughs> and I remember in the beginning, I arrived in like September, and I was like, oh, this is so gross. And um, another American was there, and he was like, wait till it's winter, and she'll really appreciate it. And I, it got, yeah, winter, and it was freezing cold, and you have this hot bowl of porridge, and it's just the best thing ever, and oh. yeah.
1: It's crazy, yeah. And I I live in Buffalo, New York, so like I'm used to the cold here. But like I feel like it would just be in Buffalo, but like w- with all of Buffalo's buffaloness and its winteriness. But like the walls are just so thin, and I would just be in my house, like sitting on my couch, able to see my breath. You know what I mean? Like I feel like that's what it would be like.
0: Yeah, is it still like that for you?
1: Oh no 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 no! It's summer right now, but like our winters, you know, we get we get 120 inches of snow in the winter, so it's uh, a yeah. It's it's a wild place. Um yeah. do you okay. do do you do any like oriyoki kind of stuff like in your own house like right now?
0: No, I don't. And you know, I just wrote um an article for Lion's Roar about um sort of the spirit of oriyoki and how to do it in your home without actually doing the whole elaborate ceremony cuz I think it's it's well, it is too hard to do by yourself and Um, You need, it's a communal practice, like um, it involves, you need somebody to cook for you and then you need servers to serve you and so it's just not realistic to do in the home. With that said, I do think there are like, um, I do think the spirit of it can be taken up. So things like practicing gratitude and um, giving and receiving something I talk about. So you can have, um, you know, you can serve things family style and have people serve each other. That's a big part of Arayaki is receiving food. Um, You can eat everything on your plate. I think that is a really important part of monastic eating. that You actually don't have a choice about what you eat and you have to eat everything. So you're really making an effort to not waste so there are things like that that you can sort of bring the spirit into your home without doing the full ritual
1: one thing that struck me was that you write that it can it uses less dishes yeah and my kitchen is like always overflowing with dishes I'm uh I'm not a i am ai am not ai cook every day but like <laughs> my dishes are everywhere
0: yeah can it help me um I mean, uh, I'm also like my husband. When it's funny, when I showed him the article I wrote about karaoke, he was like, But you always leave food on your plate. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be uh, a hypocrite. Like, I also, in my natural habitat, have a problem with dishes. Okay. So I am not, I'm the blind leading the blind here.
1: <laughs> gotcha. Um, did you see that I, You that I cooked out of your book today?
0: Yeah, you sent me the thing about the tofu. (laughs) Yeah,
1: so I totally uh, I wanted to make the miso soup because I'd never made it before. But every time I go out to eat, I get miso soup, and I saw it in the book. And I my wife wanted some lunch today, and I was thinking about what I could make, and I got the ingredients for the miso soup. And um, I actually put a picture of it on my Facebook profile when it was all done. And a few, uh, a Rinzai Roshi in Wisconsin commented on it. And a former monastic Rinzai guy who I'm friends with who lives in Washington commented on it. And he told me how to make the uh, dashi Uh because I couldn't make that. So I totally faked it and got vegetable broth and then just put lots of miso paste in it. Uh. And he gave me a lot of advice on how to make the dashi. Um, So one of the things I'm curious about um, before we get into like the recipes of the book is what are the like main things that an American cook might need in their home kitchen uh, to cook somewhat authentically or to follow the recipes in your book as carefully as they can? Well, you
0: kind of nailed it on the head already. I think, Dashi is really the most important thing. And I I don't know what kind of advice, what what advice did they give you?
1: Well, I was asking about how to make the vegetarian version and, you know, I found that in the book as well. And so I read that and then they kind of elaborated on it with uh, kombu and shiitake mushrooms and let that soak for a couple hours.
0: Well, I do have that in my book.
1: You do. You sure (laughs) do. Yeah. And um, so, basically I went to the grocery store with the full intention of buying all of those things uh-huh. and I just failed because I couldn't find it in the store. And oh, I feel, no. I feel like that's something I might run into like a challenge. Like, so, yeah. you know, how do, how do we go about finding this stuff?
0: I think you can also buy powder. You know, like I, I say that, um, you can buy kombu powder, which I think is probably a better bet. It's faster. Um, and I think I, in my book, I, say like the thing to search in your you know google let me just type it in uh, dashimoto if you search yeah if you search dashimoto d a s h i m o t o okay um, essentially yeah dashi stock powder and like i don't know it's you can buy any of those nice. um That, I mean, people have, people have strong opinions about things in powdered form. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I'm not that explicit about it in the book, but when, honestly, when I'm cooking for myself, I use that, um, um, powder, um, oh, hondashi is the other search for me, H-O-N-D-A-S-H-I, and you can find vegetarian versions of that, you can find, um, kombu dashi powder and shiitake dashi powder. And that sort of takes out the guesswork. Um, And I think you can order that online too. Um, The other thing is, what will I say about making things easy for... I'm trying to think if there's any recipes that don't need... I mean, if you're going to... I was going to... She's trying to think if there are any recipes that don't have dashi in it. There might be, but it's such a like, crucial part. Sure. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, and what's interesting, too, is like this turned into like a thread on my personal Facebook page. And yeah. one of my friends from the Buffalo Zen Center actually chimed in, and she's like, you know we have two markets that are within four miles of your house that sell yeah. all of this stuff, right? And she's like, you don't have to go to the mainstream grocery store every single time you want stuff. Uh it's there Uh,
0: i mean a good a good asian market is is great and uh, there are i mean i think now in you know globalized 21st century pretty much every not every most major cities will have them like i wrote about and maybe even commented on this like nice section on ramen Mm. i found an outlet for the like fresh noodles in like Oklahoma I can't remember where it is but it was somewhere I, just, I did not expect to have it this being sold but it's sold all over the country it's not just like coastal cities anymore yeah so well,
1: I you, think it yeah, yeah. And, you, and you wrote about a uh, Overland Park Kansas in the book as well where you found fresh ramen and like my my uncle lives there you know <laughs> yeah. um, so I want to talk some more about some of these recipes in the book because these are a lot of things and I'm, I'm going to cook out of this book. Like this is something that I'm gonna do pretty regularly, I think. This is like a new horizon for me as far as like home cooking goes. Um and something in the in the introduction that struck me is the the person who wrote your introduction, um, Tamar Adler, says how she's gonna go back to the Japanese cabbage pickles and the marinade fried eggplant recipes often. So I'm curious, now that the book has been out for a bit, if you've had any feedback on like the recipes that people are going to often, like what are you getting really great feedback on from the book in the recipe section?
0: Well, it's funny that you bring that up because, um, for the most part, people, and I'm actually kind of frustrated by this. People are often like, I didn't even realize it was a cookbook because <laughs> <laughs> cause I was so enthralled with the narrative, which is like a lovely compliment sort of, but, um, I did another interview recently where I was like, I really hope people actually cook from it because I spent a lot of time <laughs> mm-hmm. on the recipes and it's actually a cookbook. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what people are making. You're okay. the first to talk to, honestly, who's <laughs> made something.
1: Well, you know, like I really wanted to actually cook out of it before I talked to you. And I know that I cheated and I totally like – I'm gonna like learn my lesson and makes and make it better in the future. But I was like, before I talk to Gesh and Claire Greenwood, I have to cook <laughs> out of the book so that, that I can makes, talk about it.
0: That makes me really happy. Okay, that's
1: good. Um, okay, great. So listeners out there, figure out which recipes you're loving. And yeah. let us know, um and just
0: buy, buy the powder, buy the powder,
1: <laughs> yeah, for real, um, and now that I know that I can get it easily, I'm gonna not cheat, um, okay, so another thing that really struck me in the book and surprised me is how often you mentioned pickles, ah, ah, tell me more about pickles in Japan because I was this took me by surprise
0: uh, pickles are a big deal, um, <clears throat> I don't know what else to say about pickles, um. I think uh, because, I don't know, I think it probably came from like being winter and people pickling vegetables to have stuff to eat in the winter. Um, But pickles are, yeah, a part of every Japanese meal. There'll be some kind of pickle, whether it's pickled daikon or cucumber or um, burdock root or Really, any any pickle, and it's also used in the oyaki practice. It's used to clean out the bowls because um, there's antiseptic properties allegedly in the fermented pickle. Um, what surprised you about the pickle? Well, part?
1: just just how often it was in the book because like I didn't know that that was an essential and crucial part of Japanese cooking. Is it like a a mainstay in like home kitchens across the country or is it like a monastic thing?
0: No, it's everywhere. I okay. mean, it's in restaurants too. I think, I think you, I'm trying to remember restaurant meal. I'm pretty sure you'll get a pickle somewhere. Okay. Maybe that's where you want, but I mean, cause a lot of the thing about a Japanese meal is that, you know, it's like the rice is the center, right? But rice doesn't have flavor. So, Basically, all of the other components of the meal are kind of used to, like, bounce off of the rice. And, like, so that it's very high in the salt, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, soup or pickles, they're very, very salty, and it's because you're eating plain rice. Like, um, they don't put soy sauce on rice. They have plain rice, and then they get the saltiness from the pickle or from the soup. Um, so, that's kind of why they, they're pickles.
1: Excellent. Okay, well... I also have to tell you that I learned something about my own cooking from reading your book. Um, Every time I cook, it seems like I I get so excited about a new recipe that I find, and I'm so into it, and I'm shopping, and I'm getting my list, and then I bring it home, and I cook it, and I follow the recipe to the T, and it just comes out so bland and boring, and it's because of salt, isn't it?
0: Mm, salt, yeah, salt is really important. I think that I tried to sort of hammer that home at various points in the in the book. And, um, you know, now that I, I don't use any garlic in the recipes there because traditional temple cooking, um, you're not allowed to use, actually onions, even though I use onions in the book, onions and garlic and some other things because they thought it um, incited the passions. They thought it made Ooh. you more (laughs) possible. yeah but now you know i use garlic also so i was really thinking like people you like chances are you're not using enough salt or garlic yeah (laughs) in all of your food um like it probably would be improved by more but 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 not too much like my husband puts way too much garlic and everything and then there's a middle way folks
1: gotcha well because it's always just So disappointing because I spend so much time and energy and money and planning going into cooking and then it just comes out and just falls so flat. And my wife and I will just look at each other and we'll just be both so like destroyed and like just heartbroken that it's just so boring and dull. What else have you tried to make? Oh, it's just like a lot of like soups and things like that. You know, you'll make a big pot of like a chunky vegetable soup or something like that and it'll just come out and it's just like just falls flat. So I I learned that in the book that I probably need to add significantly more salt. It's like be brave with the salt. Uh, I think that's going to be my new philosophy.
0: (laughs) I Maybe I I think I told the story of being at um, Green Gulch Monastery uh, when I came back from Japan and I was working in the kitchens and they make, there we were cooking for like 60 to a hundred people. So we had these giant, you know, vats of soup and, I remember one day being the soup cook, and the Tenzo, the cook, came over and tasted it. And he was like, it needs more salt. And so, I like, I get the shaker of salt, and it, like, shakes some salt on. And he was like, no. And he goes over to the salt bowl, and he, like, <laughs> takes a handful and dumps it in. And then he's like, there.
1: <laughs> Man, I, and I feel like Green Gulch is, like, it's, like, a recurring theme on this show. Like, yeah. I've talked about Alan Watts on here a bunch, and like I think that he was like his his funeral was there, um, and like Zenju Earthland Manuel, one of the guiding teachers of over there, has been on this show before. Yeah, I've I,
0: seen her there actually.
1: I love it when it. Uh, I love it when Green Gulch or San Francisco Zen Center pops up on this show because it's like my recurring theme over the last two years. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's like a bunch of little. Tips and tricks that people in countries like the US and Canada can try out to increase their satisfaction of a meal. Like, I feel like this book is full of these little tricks and tips, Um, like eating out of several bowls instead of just piling everything on one giant plate as we are wont to do. Um, What did you learn about appreciating meals more by, you know, switching up your exposure to food and eating styles?
0: I don't understand what do you mean.
1: Did you did did you find that you came to appreciate food more um, by going to Japan and switching up how you eat?
0: I don't know that I came to appreciate food more. Like I I like I loved food then and I love food food now although I may have become more obsessed with food over the course of time there like working in kitchens and I may have become well I definitely became more like perfectionistic with my cooking um but I think this isn't really answering the question but I think something I came to understand is that A lot of the things that I thought were unique to Japanese food are just about how to cook well, like taking time and effort in how you cut things and cutting things really immaculately and paying attention to timing, timing everything really well and using enough salt, stuff like that. I used to think that that was like how you make A Japanese meal but that's just how you cook well and and that's
1: universal when you when you left Japan like you write about in the book about coming back to the U.S. and sort of landing at San Francisco Zen Center and Green Gulch and then landing in a job in their kitchen um, what was challenging about that transition of going from the Japanese monastic kitchen to the American one
0: um, huh, I need to cough. <coughs> Let's see. Well, there was a lot that was um, challenging. I think, well, I do tell this, like, story in the book about, um, I was put in charge of the Japanese, quote-unquote, Japanese meal at Greenwald's, because they were like, if you were in Japan, you can make the miso soup. And then I discovered that they make miso soup entirely differently and I think we can watch because people have a soy allergies, I guess. Mm. So like miso is actually made with fermented soybeans, but they don't do that. They use chickpeas, which it's just a whole other, whole other animal. So I had to kind of relearn all over again, how to do things their way, um, which, you know, his life and that's practice is if there's, that's you know that's something I came to understand in practicing in monasteries. Every every place has its own way, right? There's, right. No one, there's no one correct Zen way. That's why whenever I hear people arguing about like the right way of doing things, like there's there's no right way. There's just the way that people are doing it here. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, that's that was a really wonderful time though for me because I was I had met my husband and we were falling in love and. Uh, I was back in America and I was in this beautiful place. There was this amazing like gardens at Green Gulch and I would like walk to the beach and I really, yeah, really fond memories of that
1: time. Yeah. The romanticism of that, of that chapter in the book is really just delightful to read. I mean, it was just a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, after you get out of all these experiences, the um, the Japanese monastery, the American monastic life and, you know, you sort of go off to grad school and something that I found interesting was that it seemed like going from the monastic and the heavy practice aspect into like the scholarly aspect and the academic study of Buddhism, that seems in the book, it resonates to me as like being sort of like dissatisfying. Um, (laughs) <laughs> did you find Did you find that that experience was you know that dis, this that dissatisfaction between going from that Buddhist practice to like the academic environment?
0: Yeah, definitely, and I think that maybe a lot of practitioners share that sentiment with me. Um, you know, I, I fully intended when I so I I have a master's in East Asian studies, um, <clears throat> and when I did that program, I was fully intending to you know do a PhD and like take it all the way. Um, but I very quickly realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do because, you know, I'm actually not interested in Japan (laughs) and I'm actually not interested in Buddhism. Those are just heuristics for, um, what I'm actually interested in, which is how to be happy, how, how to be a good human being. Right. So, um, I think, these labels like Japan and Buddhism and Zen got sort of attached onto that because that was the method I was using. But at its core, that's, I'm I'm really just interested in, in being a, a human being. And, um, and, and also like academic practice is, yeah, like you said, it's very, very heady. And it's oftentimes it's more about the history of Buddhism or it is, it's just simply just the history of Buddhism. So it includes um, political history, economic history, Um, it's very, there's lots of like Marxist analysis, which sort of distill, I had, I struggled in grad school because a lot of the things I was reading was like distilling religion down to just purely material things Mm. and real factors. And I, like, I think that is one way of looking at it. Like, um, I think probably the biggest thing I like learned or discovered in grad school is that, um, that I often tell people now is like, there's no such thing as Buddhism. People people talk about Buddhism like, what does Buddhism say about abortion? Like, a magazine contacted me to ask me what Buddhism says about abortion. And I was like, Buddhism doesn't say anything, because... <laughs> <laughs> Buddhism is people. Buddhism is a collection of people. There's no such thing as Buddhism. There are texts and there's canons, but they were written by people. So it's just a series of people over time. Right? So I think that was a really good takeaway for me. But I think, yeah, it just wasn't for me to, to be in that really, like, dry, um, materialist view all the time. I need more heart. I need more, like, heart connection to my work.
1: Yeah, well, and you know, like something else that rings out is when you, I feel like when you learn that, like the impression that I get is that when you learned that um, you got really involved in like citizenship Um, and you kind of write about that where you're talking about listening to the head of a large Tibetan denomination and he said, forget about being a good Buddhist, be a good neighbor and a good citizen instead. Like, does that, did that resonate with you a lot?
0: Well, yeah, I actually, I mean, I heard that that was when I was in college and I, I studied abroad and in in Gaya where the Buddha was enlightened and we had the chance to meet the Karmapa and he was the one who said that somebody, he, he's funny, he was our age and like he was so grumpy, <laughs> <laughs> he like so did not want to be there because he was like 22 or 23 and um. But you know, and we were these like idealistic Western practitioners who were there and like super zeal, like super into like wanting to know about Buddhism. And one of us asked us asked him that question, and he said that. And I remember at the time being like, that's so cynical, like that's so yeah, it felt really dismissive. Um And it took many many years for me to come to a place where I agreed with that wholeheartedly. And I think probably he was already at that place because he'd been immersed in that monastic life for so long that he had come to see through the delusions that I was still stuck in at that point. But yeah, I mean, absolutely, you start start where you are. Be a be a good neighbor and and take care of your city. Um, definitely.
1: One of the things that I like to ask people who have done, like, a really serious practice for a long time is um, I like them to imagine that they are coming to my classroom, a normal high school American classroom, to be, like, a guest speaker. Mm-hmm. So imagine that you've come to my classroom and you've had this fantastic Q&A with a group of American high school students about Zen practice. Mm-hmm. What do you think that, like, young people should um, walk away with at the end of your appearance in my classroom?
0: Well, (laughs) I have this one professor in uh, grad school now who says he he wants a T-shirt that says, It depends. Mm. (laughs) So I think it depends on if I were giving, like, an academic lecture. Like, is this school... Where they are learning something, or is this experiential?
1: Well, I think, so I've done this in the past many times, and people would come to my room, and the students would just ask them whatever they wanted to know about, like, a certain religion, or a certain practice, or a certain tradition. So oftentimes, it's just, like, very practical in nature, like, how do you do XYZ? And which text do you read? And what do you do on certain days of the week? And, but it also can get super deep where they ask them, about like, over the last 20 years, like, what are your biggest takeaways about your practice? And how have you grown as a person? Um, so I'm curious, like, if students are asking you questions about, like, some of your biggest takeaways from, like, Zen practice and, you know, your both sides of the coin approach to it um, of being in a monastery and then being out. What do you think that, like, you know, students should sort of walk away from that experience of learning? Well,
0: I think maybe two things. I would start by, I think a lot of people have misconceptions about what Zen is, and they don't realize that Zen monks are people and that um, Zen is a religion that serves a social function right so in japan and in parts of asia um it serves this a function of connecting families and communities and worshiping ancestors um keeping track of you know the harvest and the equinox things like that so i think in the west we romanticize it a lot and try to make it something bigger than it is and so the first thing i like to do is. um younger students, I guess, is kind of clarify what Zen is and isn't. Um, so starting with the understanding that it it's a religion, it has a history, it has, um, you know, it changes depends depending on cultural context. But then I think if you look at it that way, um, you can, it can collapse if you, you know, deconstruct it too much. It's a danger with, like post-structuralism, right, that things just will fall apart. And in my own practice, too, I've had, like, crises of faith because I totally deconstructed Zed, right? I was like, there's no Buddhism. It's just product of material conditions. (laughs) There's no truth, right? That's not where we want to be either. (laughs) So on the other side of that, there's... um, I think an invitation, um, to interconnectedness and, um, joy and presence and, um, both thinking beyond the small self and taking care of the small self. So those are kind of what I would want to encourage people to do.
1: Excellent. Well, Geshe and Claire Greenwood, I am super grateful to you for taking some time out of your Sunday to talk to me for the Classical Ideas podcast, talking about your new book, Just Enough, which is really great. I have been reading it and loving it. And I'm curious if you can just tell people where they can find you if they want to follow your work or know more about what you do.
0: Thank you. Yeah, um, I have a website. It's geshin.net, G-E-S-S-H-I-N. I I think I just updated it. So it should have information on... Yep, there it is. Um, I sporadically write on my blog... That's SoZen. Um, I also write on Medium. I have like two followers on Twitter. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, one of them is you. Um, <laughs> Yay, go me. So feel free to follow me on Twitter. Um, yep,
1: that's well, me. Y- and, you know, I I, I read uh, your one of your Medium posts recently that I loved and actually really helped me because I interviewed uh, Dr. Ann Gleig, about, oh, yeah. her, about her uh, her book, American Dharma. Okay. And I read your blog posting and your article about how to hack academic texts. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be so, so helpful and clarifying. And mm-hmm. I mean, it just is just so well, well put um, because that's exactly what I have been trying to do for so many years. And you gave me a few new strategies for how to break into things that are challenging to read.
0: Did you read it before? Did you read that before you talked to her?
1: Um, I I read it before I talked to her, but I didn't read everything because I was under a time crunch. But um, whenever I read your article, I went back and I did what you said to do for my, huh? nec- for my next book. Um, I read this book called The Myth of Disenchantment by okay. Jason Josephson Storm. And it's a really tough read, but it's so interesting. But I did exactly what you said, and it just made the experience... Really, a just a different way of approaching a book, and I just really enjoyed it. And I got a lot out of your suggestions.
0: Oh, good. I'm glad.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I am so grateful to you for talking to me tonight. So uh, thank you so much for being here.
0: Thanks for having me on, and thank you for actually cooking from the
1: book. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> and uh, maybe we can uh, encourage people to um, to try some stuff out and let you know what they think.
0: Thanks. That would be great.
1: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at, at Outlook.com.